but you made a further amendment to a paragraph where you changed some language from fundamental impacts on to significant implications for. Yes, apparently. Was there an intention to soften language to DHS there? I have no recollection of that, but just looking at it, I might instinctively use the word significant instead of fundamental. I, it might be a style issue, but I have no recollection of particularly wanting to change that. Welcome to the Westminster tradition, where we are unpacking lessons for the public service, starting with the RoboDebt Royal Commission. My name is Alison Lloyd-Runner, and I'm here with my fellow South Australian public servant, Caroline Crozabalo. Hello, Alison. And recovering public servant, Danielle Elston. Hello, Alison. Today's episode, we are going to dive deep into the challenge of working closely with other agencies. RoboDebt was designed and implemented by the Department of Human Services, for human services. My God, when I'm the boss of the world, everyone gets one. Department <laughs> of or Department for. <laughs> RoboDebt was designed and implemented by Department for Human Services. By and large, most of the action was in DHS, complaints, media inquiries and process fixes. However, the Department of Social Services was the policy agency and had the power to end RoboDebt before it began. So let's talk about DSS. What was their role in this mess? So DSS were the policy agency, as you say. They owned the Social Security Act and they owned the overall question of what is it that we want from Social Security? DHS owned delivery. They owned kind of giving the money out and what was called operational policy. So DHS drove RoboDebt. They came up with the idea, pitched it to a minister that wasn't their own, wrote the MPP that had to be lodged by DSS. Um, mm. They did the running. And Melissa Golightly as DEPSEC, now deceased, and Catherine Campbell as secretary, really pushed this through and made it a reality. So this is actually the first of two episodes we're going to do on DSS uh, because DSS had a number of moments where they could have killed RoboDebt and didn't, and I think there's some critical lessons for us to learn there. The first lesson and the one that we're going to talk about today is about the danger of oversimplification and the difficulty of knowing that we mean the same thing when we write words on a piece of paper, which mm -hmm. is often harder than you think it is. Given the policy was eventually found to be illegal, how did it slip past DSS? Did it slip past? Yeah, no, it didn't. Uh, and so, in fact, DSS blocked this budget measure from the beginning when DHS first came to chat to them about it in late 2014. They said, look, here are seven reasons why I think it's a bad idea, and they went and got legal advice saying it couldn't happen. But we know it got lodged, so how did it happen? Well, let me turn that question back around to you. Alison, can you describe to our listeners the Columbia effect? Oh, yes, I can. Because I'm a nerd that loves a plane crash, uh, <laughs> a literal plane crash. She doesn't love people dying in plane no, crashes. No, I do not love people. Clear. I love the investigative process of working out what went wrong, which is part of my fascination with RoboDebt, to be honest. Um, so, the Space Shuttle Columbia... Uh, broke up as it lifted off, mm -hmm. right? And it broke up because chunks of spray-on-foam insulation broke off. That doesn't sound good. No. I don't know much about rockets. <laughs> but oh, sorry, doesn't... it didn't break up on exit. It broke up on re-entry, but because of the bits that had broken up on yeah. exit. Um, and I guess one of the really interesting things about Columbia is that was a known risk. Huh? 
So engineers at various points had flagged that this was a problem. But what happened? But no one glued it better again. <laughs> I've got sticky tape in my head. I'm like, writing sticky tape around me. A bit like Robert, a range of factors sure. around urgency and speed and politics and budgets. But one of the really interesting things that happens is your your engineers with this kind of deeply technical information, it keeps getting kind of simplified and elevated up to a level. Mm-hmm. So there's an argument that Microsoft PowerPoint is the cause of the shuttle exploding because they took like really dense technical information and put it on a slide with kind of really much less technical information, much softer language. So you had this process where technical experts knew a thing and as it went up and up and up levels to senior decision makers... Who obviously are less technically... Who are less technically capable. Mm. Some of the key... Content? Content, I suppose, yeah. Use more glue, obviously, dropped out (laughs) (laughs) along the way somewhere. So, look, I think something really similar happens here for DSS. So, it's not – it's that technical information gets left out and there's also a thing about language softening that feels very public service to me as well. So, you know, as I say, in late 2014, DHS come to them and say, hey, we're thinking about using this algorithm to, you know, smooth the incomes and send out some debt notices. And DSS says, look, that's unlawful, it's immoral, and it's very likely that you're not going to be able to recover those debts because it turns out it's going to be inaccurate. So, like, they had nailed... And that was the end of it, right? Yep. Yeah, end said, of podcast, end of Royal yeah, Commission. <laughs> that's exactly right. <laughs> and DHS said, oh, sorry, we're terribly naughty and we'll never do that. No, in fact, DSS go and get internal legal advice, and, and this is the 2014 legal advice, and it, and it says the same thing. And then what I particularly love in the Royal Commission hearings is that you then see these seemingly endless emails that DSS sends amongst itself. So they send each other all these kind of outraged emails about, oh, and another reason why it's terrible and another reason why it's terrible. And every now and then one of those emails even pops out to DHS, the people they're actually trying to talk to, so good on them. But I think one of the things that's really interesting is that as that first piece of advice from the EL1 gets kind of pushed up to the branch head and then up to the FAS, who's the person who's responsible for taking it over to DHS, you see this real flattening of the language. So my favourite one is that there's a paragraph which talks about a fundamental problem with the legislative basis for this process. And uh, and the acting FAS says, oh, I think probably it's just significant. And for the non-public servants listening to this, and boy, I feel sorry for you if you are, you might not read the code there, but the yeah. difference between fundamental and significant is significant for a public servant. But I do wonder about whether it's significant for a minister. And, and I wonder about as well, so who is reading the codes along the way and who is making sense of it? So they get their feedback up to DHS and they do manage to at least say, look, the proposal fundamentally changes the assessment of income within the social security system and is not supported by current policy or legislation. Again, I love this, right? Because what does not supported by current policy or legislation mean? Can anyone it's illegal. <laughs> Thank you, ladies. That's exactly <laughs> what that means. Outside of the bounds of current... Yeah. <laughs> now, look, so that's, that there's a phrase you see a lot, not consistent with the legislation. Hmm. I'm like, that's too many words for illegal. That's like, right. 
That's not exactly consistent right. with the legislation. You see that everywhere in and this so process. And so the minister reading not consistent with the legislation doesn't get quite the same feeling in his bowels as he does when someone says something's illegal, right? Like yep. there's just a completely different tone. So this is one of the ways that the language is softened. Another way that the language is softened is that DHS are, of course, holding the pen on the final executive minute that goes to the minister. So while DSS do send over their very long and convoluted explanation of why they think it's terrible, DHS are in charge of kind of summarising that in the minute that goes to the minister. Does this feel familiar to anyone? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and what they say is there may need to be a change of policy to enable the use of ATO data in this way. DSS has also advised that a legislative change would also be needed. As a result, we've been working with DSS on developing this proposal and will continue to do so. So, sounds like it's all under control, Caroline. <laughs> I'm not worried. I'm not worried. <laughs> So I guess my question to you guys is, like, why do people do that kind of softening, right? Why do we change the language from saying it's illegal to not consistent? And I guess for me it's, like, how much fear? How Mm. much is that a decision led by fear? Because if your language is a bit uh, hard to pin down, it's much less likely that you are wrong. Much less likely that you offend someone. Mm. And being wrong and offending someone is way worse than if you're right and offend someone. So if you're not sure, there's a thing there too, isn't there? It also depends whether what your expectation is of getting it through the person you've got to get it through above you. So, like, I'm a reasonably um, direct writer and I have not been in the public service my whole career. So I had this experience of giving people advice just as it comes into my head and then putting it on paper and then coming in and discovering these codes that you're talking about and going, (laughs) what? I don't get it. What does that whole word salad over there mean? And I would have just kept being myself except the people I had to get to sign that work wouldn't sign my direct way of writing. And so some of it is also about how we train people to speak in the code, which was – like I was actively trained. I came into the public – well, I had a very short stint as a federal public servant that's bound to come up in this podcast at some point. But I came in the second time um, at a kind of senior, senior manager level and had to be trained to passive and soften my language. And I then trained other people to not be quite so direct and to leave – room or we wouldn't be able to get stuff signed through and I wonder as well if there's something about like the FOI-ness of it all so there's Mm -hmm. something about how when you write something that says this proposal is illegal versus this proposal is not consistent you can't do that you can't that's exactly (laughs) right then if someone approves it they approved something that is currently illegal that they knew to be illegal yeah so I think there's something about that as well I also but also like the coded language ever it was thus, right? Yeah. Like that's mm. the basis of the comedy in <laughs> Yes Minister. Yeah. <laughs> and every industry does have its own language, right? So we are not Robertson Crusoe. There's nothing like going to like a barbecue with an old school friend or something and you're the only non-such and such in the room and they're all talking and while it appears to be the same language as you speak, you've got no idea what they're talking about because – industries do come with their own language. So we have developed our own language, yes, Minister, over a long period of time, but I don't think that was done in harm either. I don't think it's just about FOI and coded and softening. I think part of it is 
every industry starts to develop its own way of talking about its work. Yeah. Mm. Oh, yeah, they've got this minute, right? It's got soft language in it. It's got coded language in it. It doesn't say it's illegal. It says it's inconsistent. That's right. Legislation. Why isn't that enough? (laughs) (laughs) So this is where the kind of, I reckon, the real Columbia effect kind of kicks in. It's where the simplification of technical information comes about because we're in very tight timelines time now. You know, the minister has approved this executive minute on the 20th of February 2015 and the new policy proposals for the budget are due around the 4th of March, so two weeks later. So DHS has been given imprimatur to go and, you know, do this work and they have to do the work with DSS and they've got to sort this out super quickly. So there's this critical meeting on the 27th of February and as far as I can tell, the most junior person in the meeting is from from DHS as an assistant secretary uh, who's never worked on the floor, um, he's never never worked in compliance, he, you know, he's kind of come in as a, as a senior public servant in there. And at the end of that meeting, the wording in the MPP changes. And what it changes from is this assessment will be based on the fortnightly attribution of the income advised by the ATO. That is, the MPP says Mm -hmm. the thing out loud, which we now know to be illegal and which DSS thought to be illegal. But they strike that out and they say, this will not change how income is assessed or overpayments calculated. That's wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Not true. Well, so people leave this meeting with vastly different explanations of what they agreed, what this sentence means, right? And that's what I find really interesting, that you can have a sentence that means such vastly different things to people. So the DHS Assistant Secretary, the most junior burger in the room, he says to the Royal Commission, he says, look, I just thought DSS understood the proposal better, right? Like that they understood that we'd always been using averaging in some form. And so like actually we haven't changed how income is assessed or overpayments calculated. So he leaves thinking proposal is untouched, DSS understand it better and that's what's got us through. His boss, the FAS, Mark Withnall, says, oh, no, this was a dramatic change. He says this is an agreement that we will not use averaging as the final source of the debt record, right? And he holds this position, I think. Uh, it will show up in the testimony, it will show up in the Royal Commission's findings about his um, veracity as a witness, but he holds the position that he left that meeting thinking they were going to change the way they were doing it and they were definitely not going to robo-debt, right? Yeah. And somehow he never yeah. followed up. And that's what DSS say they believed when they left the meeting as well. They, they thought everyone came to a meeting of the minds that said, no, no, we're not going to use averaging as the final piece of information. It won't be the thing. So... Of course, both of those things can be true. Yep. You can both say this is a brand new process and we're going to recover billions of dollars and we've been doing this forever. It just depends how much kind of technical content you've bracketed into that conversation. So the content in which they had been using averaging in the regional offices was as a last resort. You know, once the compliance officer had gone to the business and tried to compel the provision of the information and once the customer had tried to get their bank statements. So they'd been using it previously, probably illegally, to be fair, in a small number of circumstances where they'd done a whole bunch of other stuff and it was the only information available and then they would use it. And usually it was better off for the client to use it than to not use it is the other thing to say, right? So in those circumstances, they had been using averaging. That's a really different context from what is proposed here, which is that the customer has an opportunity 
to provide information before it's applied to the record, but that's it. DHS think those two pieces of context are the same because <laughs> DHS are morons in this particular case. They just can't quite see the legal or policy distinction between one where you do all the work and one where the client does all the work. DSS know that that's a meaningful distinction, but they don't talk about that. Instead, they write a sentence and they leave a meeting. Which I think leads us to how do you, as right, if we're talking about the craft of public administration, how do you make sure that that technical detail doesn't get lost? And I, and I have two meanings of get lost, right? I mean, either get filtered out on the way up Columbia Effect style or because we've all had technical reports which are so dense, mm. so lacking in... A plain awareness English. of strategic context, plain yeah. English, that, like, it's actually just really hard to grapple with what they're trying to tell you. I think, so I think one of the bits is um, is where, where are the subject matter experts in the sense of when are they in the room and when they're not in the room. I had this excellent minister who always wanted the subject matter expert in the room Um like right down to that, I once took an intern because they were the person who'd been working on it for a long time and they knew heaps more than I knew about it and he always wanted them there because he quite liked a prosecutorial like. <laughs> <laughs> I know exactly which minister. Exactly which intern, actually. You are giving away your ministers. Do you? Not at all. Oh, actually, and they were joyful meetings of a minister across content where mm. he wanted someone who knew what Section 23 meant and I had 29 projects and I didn't know what Section 23 meant. So um, I think one of it is in trying to get them into some of those rooms and I think there's two things. One is that um, sometimes leaders don't like that because – they it exposes that they're not the expert. It exposes that they're Ooh. not the expert and it exposes that some of the best pieces of work they're going to put on their CV is repackaged works from an intern or a junior burger of some description. And so if you bring them with you, it becomes clear It becomes clear that the thing you signed through, you didn't write. Yeah. And so I think there is a cultural issue of bringing subject matter experts more. Now, you can't do that all the time or you would have a cast of thousands. So it's not an ultimate solution is to have them there, but we could do it more. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do really think there's a thing about a certain type of ego-led yeah. fear about being, you know. Yeah. You're yeah. the boss. You want to be seen as the expert. But you're not. Well, and especially I think that's why it's been wildly liberating at times of my career to be have a leadership role over things in which I am wildly not and will never be mm. an expert. That's not my job. Mm. Absolutely. My job is to create the right authorising environment for those experts to do what they need to do, but to be that translation channel that gets the core bits of their information up to decision makers in a way that the decision makers can hear and understand. And I think, like, there's something about that concept of translation, Alison, because I know, I've like, I've seen you do this in some really highly technical areas through through our career, you know, like you once explained to me the concept of vertical water rights versus horizontal, horizontal water, water rights. rights. <laughs> I've got a great diagram, anyone? Come on down. Yeah. But I think the if you... If you are using translators, and often you need to in that yeah. really technical uh, space, 
You need to have translators who are curious and open. You need to have translators who are not gunning for a particular outcome. Because mm. I have seen people weaponize their kind of small amount of technical knowledge to shut down other arguments or other um, parts of the world. Like I'm thinking about some of the best HR um, bum fights I've ever been involved in have involved kind of HR experts trying to tell me what, what I can and cannot do under the act, which is just, you know, actually patently not true and the Bush lawyer can work that out. Um, so expertise can be weaponized if it is if it is used with a really particular outcome in mind and if you're not open to the idea that maybe you're missing something. So I think that's important to me as well. You need experts, you need translators who are kind of open and listening. And then I think you're in a place where you're more likely to be able to get a kind of common sense check in there. And have the trust of the technical experts, right? Yeah. I asked so many questions when I took on that River Murray work. And I think for the first two weeks they thought I was – straight up an idiot Um, but I was learning and I was making sure that I understood everything in context and that I understood why this and not that and yeah and then for two years they could trust you to carry the can of their interests in in intergovernmental negotiations like I think that is really important so there's something about time as well right time spent and one of the things that we know is that none of the people who are in that room on the 27th of February had spent the time trying to understand what was actually happening on the front line in compliance or what it might look like in the future. They weren't they were dealing with quite abstracted pieces of paper. Yeah. And they weren't thinking through the kind of process map of this person, then this person, then this and then this. I like I listened to that thinking, you know, we're we're blurring and muddying with words and inconsistent with legislation instead of um instead of illegal. I'm not very visual, but it also strikes me as one of those best situations where boxes and colours would have been really helpful. And would have, would have You're in an amber zone. <laughs> <laughs> no, no traffic lights, please. God help me. Um, but it would have been really – so it's one of those things where too many words makes it so dense that you miss the thing. And that's where pictures – when I say pictures, I mean boxes and colours and are a lot harder to water down – than it is to change a paragraph's tone with two words and all of a sudden you flip the meaning. Well, which is as well, like, I think sometimes the problem that we get with technical expertise is that, so reflecting on your thing about the weaponisation of it, I once had a our risk manager tell me I couldn't do something. And I was like, well, no, I, I can do it yeah. if I am prepared to wear, the risk. to wear this risk. Yeah. And I am. So Turns I'm going out. to do it. And so, like, you're right, I once drew for Cabinet a decision tree, which I appended to a cabinet submission because they had to make so many, like, if this, then your choices. Choose your own adventure. Like, yeah. But it was such a visual way to show your trade-offs, yeah. right? If you go down here, then you don't get that one. Yep. And then you go down here and you don't get that one. Um but I think, you know, what's that Oscar Wilde? I don't think he actually said it quote. I'm sorry, I wrote you such a long letter. If I'd had more time, I would have written a shorter. Yeah. Like, <laughs> to me, there's something about the way that the time constraint yeah. made it really hard for them to distill what were the important facts. Like some things you actually do just need to spend some time with to yeah. kind of turn it over, try and put it in a diagram, realise what's missing when you put it in the diagram. Shop it around a little bit. I'm working on this thing. What do you think? Uh, It doesn't sound like – yeah. 
Absolutely. And in this particular case, of course, they can't shop it around because it's an MPP. Yeah. So it's all terribly top secret. Um, and they're in this terribly hierarchical culture where... And that's the other thing, thinking about the hierarchical culture, where only the more senior people get in the room. Yeah. And so they've got a culture that explicitly excludes the people who might have knowledge about it. What a great note to end on. Till next time. This podcast was recorded on Ghana land and we recognise Ghana elders past and present. Always was, always will be. Just some appropriately bureaucratic disclaimers. Those of us in the employ of the state government speak in a strictly personal capacity, consistent with the Public Sector Code of Ethics that permits public servants to promote an outcome in relation to an issue of public interest, in this case, the betterment of the public service. Nothing we say should be taken as representing the views of the government or our employers. While we've tried to be as thorough in our research as busy full-time jobs and lives allow, we definitely don't guarantee that we've got all the details right. If you want rigorous reporting on robo-debt, we recommend the work of Rick Morton at The Saturday Paper, Chris Naus and Luke Enrique Gomez at The Guardian, Ben Eltham at Crikey, and of course, the Robo-Debt Royal Commission itself. The first eight episodes were recorded before the Royal Commission launched its final report and so don't benefit from the great wisdom of Commissioner Holmes. Please feel free to email us corrections, episode suggestions or anything else at the Westminster Tradition Pod at gmail.com. Thanks to Pampot Audio for our intro and outro music. Till next time.